so welcome back and welcome to any new faces here as well. I think there are some. This is uh, the th- third out of four weeks through. Um, we basically spent the first two weeks uh, looking um, at uh, atheism versus theism. That is, belief in God versus not belief in God. And we uh, had a look at criticizing the new atheist movement. Um, We looked at a couple of arguments for the existence of God in dialogue with uh, criticisms from people like Richard Dawkins. And uh, then we uh, spent last week uh, looking at the problem of evil, or various versions of the problem of evil, and then the moral argument for God, so arguments for and against God uh, from values. And now we're uh, shifting gear and moving on to um, a more sort of particularly uh, Christian uh, theistic uh, view on things by beginning to turn our attention uh, to the Bible, or in this uh, case, the four canonical Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, And then next week, uh, I'll be giving an overview of uh, arguments for having a Christian understanding uh, of who Jesus was. Uh, But this week, we're going to look at the the central um, sort of historical sources for biography of Jesus uh, that we have. Not the only historical sources that we have by any means. Um, Certainly, there's lots of good historical nuggets to be gleaned about Jesus from the rest of the New Testament, Uh, but also outside of the New Testament uh, in early uh, pagan, Jewish, and Christian writings. But that would be a subject for an entirely separate talk. Uh, And you've got, as I mentioned, this subsidiary paper that you can pick up. Uh, It was a paper that's uh, published on the UCCF's BeThinking website on archaeology uh, and the the New Testament. Uh, But I'm going to be giving a sort of overview of the research that I did recently for my book, Understanding Jesus, uh, on uh, the, uh, the Gospels that we have in the New Testament. So let's kick off with a, a quote from a respected New Testament scholar called Richard Bockham, uh, author of books uh, such as Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which is quite a, a thick, heavy, hardback tome, uh, and uh, a very short introduction, Jesus, in the Oxford, you know, the little Oxford uh, very short introduction series. Uh, Very good, and I recommend uh, if you want to get uh, a book that's not on my bookstall here tonight, uh, Richard Bockham's Jesus, a very short introduction in the Oxford uh, series. He talks about the best way of of categorizing the Gospels as literature, because there's been a long-standing debate over the years as to what what kind of intention, what kind of uh, thing are the Gospels? And he's summarizing the view that the the recent scholarly debate about this has pegged them as basically being uh, biographies. Uh, Not biographies in the modern sense of biography that you would pick up at Waterstones, um, as you would immediately get from seeing how little attention, say, is given to Jesus' childhood and formative experiences uh, or family background, particularly in certain of the Gospels. But in terms of ancient literature, they're of the genre of Gospels. Uh, More precisely, says Bochum, biographies of a contemporary person based, as such biographies were expected to be, on eyewitness testimony. Um, So we might think these are very important sources for our understanding of uh, Jesus and who he was. Of course, atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins here, not impressed... Dawkins says that the fact that something is written down is persuasive to people not used to asking questions like who wrote it and and when. 
Um, well, let us spend this evening asking precisely uh, those questions. I'm going to take us through in the two talks, through these four links in what I call the chain of testimony. If you're looking at someone's testimony, uh, uh, claiming to be testimony about some event, there's basically four sort of links in this chain of how you've got this testimony that you want to be pretty sure are fairly strong uh, in uh, that linkage to, to link you back to the event itself, as it were. So link one is the link, as it were, between the, the reported events themselves and the source of the information. Link two is that link between the source of the information about the event and the writing down of that report, if we're looking at written reports. Link three, this is what we'll look at after break, between the original written report, what's called the autograph, technically speaking, and the surviving copies, written copies of that report, because back in history they didn't have the printing press and you wanted a copy of something, you had to pay a scribe to make a copy. And the final link is between, uh, therefore, getting back to the autograph, the original written report, and the text that we can reconstruct here and now in the present day on the basis of the surviving copies of the original written report. So when you hold the Bible in your hands today, you have uh, people's best attempt at reconstructing the text of the original written report on the basis of the surviving copies of that report. And that takes us back, and then you're thinking, well, okay, someone wrote down this report, but say, how long after the thing that they're talking about or reporting did they write that down? Who were they? Were they in a good position to know what they were talking about? And so on. So those are what I call the links, the four main links in the chain of testimony. And this first talk will focus on the first two, second talk on the second two. So let's look at the Gospels. Who wrote what? When? There are not to be confused with our four links and change testimony, but basically four overlapping historical stages to producing these links. You have the, the witnesses to the historical Jesus, the disciples and so on, um, from the lifetime of Jesus. And then you have a period of what's called oral history, of people just remembering what they've seen and heard and so on, telling other people, telling those stories, those information that they're the eyewitnesses to. And then you have the period of written sources. When do those eyewitnesses or the information from those eyewitnesses start getting written down? Uh, and then when do perhaps those written sources and drawing on eyewitness oral sources as well get formulated into a gospel, as it were? And we'll look at some of the theories that scholars work out of the different sort of sources that go behind uh, the, the gospel documents that we have. Luke's prologue to his gospel, interestingly, can be seen as referring to all of these different stages of, of source formation. He says that many have undertaken to draw up an account, like a gospel, stage three, of the things that have been fulfilled among us, the events themselves, people's witnessing them, stage one. 
Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That's stage two. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Stage four, his putting this all, these sources, having investigated it all together into the gospel that he's presenting to Theophilus, who may have been uh, the rich guy who was paying for the copying of the, the text distribution, perhaps. So who wrote the gospels? Richard Dawkins thinks that nobody knows who the four evangelists, as they're called, were, but they almost certainly never met Jesus. It's a bit of a half-truth at best. Uh, New Testament uh, scholar Mark D. Roberts puts it like this. In recent years, many have come to believe that the first and fourth Gospels reflect the memory and the perspective of Jesus' own disciples. Uh, Both Matthew and John. First and fourth in, in the order that are listed in our Bibles today. Matthew and John. Matthew and John may not have been the ones who finally put pen to papyrus, but they, their memory, their authority, stand behind the Gospels that bear their names. Luke Timothy Johnson says, no one can be certain who wrote these books. They they don't actually come in the earliest manuscripts with, as books do today, you know, such as such a written by so and so with a little copyright notice saying they retain the moral right, etc. Um, books didn't used to be like that. Still, Johnson says the best evidence that we possess suggests that the sources for the four gospels were a tax collector named Matthew, Simon Peter's translator uh, Mark, the physician Luke, companion of Paul, and a fisherman named John, who was uh, within the circle of Jesus' disciples, although there's some debate over which particular figure mentioned in other places that might have been um, the beloved disciple, uh, the elder John, and so on. And indeed, when you're thinking about the the names that we do have from early tradition ascribed to these uh, documents... Seems if that they were if they were made up as it were, people would have made up more interesting and significant names to attach to these documents. Um, peripheral characters such as Mark or Luke or even Matthew, given that he's a, a tax collecting Roman collaborator, uh, writing a gospel aimed at a Jewish audience. That does, seems a bit weird. Uh, Mark and Luke weren't among the disciples. Matthew, a bit disreputable. Indeed, by contrast with the, the, Bible, the biblical Gospels, when you look at the, the later, the 2nd and 3rd century sort of so-called Gnostic Gospels and so on, the apocryphal Gospels, um, they are all falsely ascribed to highly reputable and influential uh, early Christians. So you have things like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of uh, Judas and Apostle Thomas, and uh, to try and make them appear more authoritative. 
Um, and yet, for the earlier Gospels, you don't find things like the Gospel of Peter. You find, well, Mark, who knew Peter, wrote one. Or Luke, who was he? He wasn't even one of the disciples. So I reckon a good case can still be made for the, the traditional names that we assign to, think, to uh, these Gospels as at least being major sources and influences behind them as being the author in the case of, of Mark and Luke. I've got various uh, charts and graphs as we go through, which I, I like. And here's a graph that shows the, the kind of range of dates that scholars ascribe to the, the four Gospels. And I've given you a column here of conservative ranges of dates and a column of, of so-called liberal ranges of dates. Um, and you can see, of course, the conservative dates are, are ranging earlier than the liberal dates. But you can see that whatever people's kind of theological perspective, as it were, there is something of a consensus here. The rough consensus, as Roy Williams puts it, seems to be sometime between AD 60 and AD 90. Given that Jesus died in 30 or 33, that's, say, 30 to 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, so all mainstream scholars of whatever theological persuasion agree that these four Gospels come from the uh, first century. They're the only first century Gospels, uh, accounts of Jesus' life, biographies that we have. Now, when you start looking at extra-biblical writings, you can notice things like uh, the early church fathers Polycarp or Ignatius or Clement refer to and quote from the four Gospels. So Polycarp refers to all four Gospels and the book of Acts in about 110 AD. And Ignatius, uh, likewise, about 108-ish AD. Clement, uh, about 96 AD, quotes from all three of the so-called synoptic Gospels. That's Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And you can also look at manuscript evidence and note things like there used to be sort of back in the turn of the, not this turn of this millennium, but the turn of the previous century, uh, this view that John, at least, being the last gospel, was into the second century. And that's been ruled out by manuscript finds uh, that um, would place it certainly into the first century because we've got manuscripts that's very unlikely to be the original dating from about 125 um, AD. Uh, and John's the last gospel, so the other ones have to be earlier than that. That certainly seems to push everything into the first century. So all historians will agree that the gospels were written down and circulated during the first generation after uh, the events of Jesus' life. Now here's a very influential argument, particularly put by a liberal scholar called John Robinson argued this uh, some years ago, and he noted that um, Acts by Luke is of course a sequel to the Gospel of Luke follows, follows on uh, and it ends with Paul still in prison and it doesn't tell us what happens to Paul given that he's a central character at least in the latter part of the, the book that seems rather odd nothing is said about Paul's trial or indeed the martyrdom of James uh, Jesus' brother, which happened in AD 62. Nothing's mentioned about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, 
And given the things that, that Paul and so on, you can read about that, you know, the church is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple, not the, the temple. You might think that there would be some theological mileage to be made out of mentioning that, you know, the temple has been destroyed, but hey, that doesn't matter because we know we're the temple now in the new covenant and so on. Um, so Robinson argued that, well, Acts is therefore probably written before these major events that you would have expected people to mention had happened. So Luke, uh, Luke's book of Acts must be dated prior to AD 62, and the Gospel of Luke, a little earlier than that at least, because Acts is the sequel. And as we'll see, given the way that, that scholars think the Gospels draw on each other sometimes and so on, the other Gospels, uh, the synoptic ones, earlier than that. Uh, so, that is quite an influential argument for dating um, at least the synoptic Gospels and Acts earlier than AD 62. Um, most people think that John is further out towards the end of the first century um, long enough after those uh, events in AD 70 for it to be less significant that he doesn't mention them. Uh, and then you get into fairly tentative, speculative type arguments trying to nail down the precise uh, sequence between these Gospels and the precise dating on them. And I'm not really going to go into this except to say that um, I would very tentatively place Mark's Gospel as the first Gospel in AD 49. Jesus died in AD 30, 33. Mark's Gospel, AD 49. And then Matthew and Luke before AD 62. And then John um, in the 80s, 90s. At least the, the final form um, thereof. Now, here was a chart that I was, I was so excited the day I came across this information and, and uh, some of this has been uh, checked out elsewhere as well and was able to formulate a graph like this uh, because I'd been wondering for a long time about the interval, that interval I discussed, between the, the historical events and the written report about those events. And this chart uh, compares that gap for uh, the four Gospels and compares them with other ancient works of, of history and biography and so on. Um, so it allows us to see, if you look up, up, up the graph here, uh, you get to there, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, about here. There's a few, uh, Pliny, uh, Xenophon and so on, a few before, but lots of uh, classical literature afterwards where that gap is a lot bigger. Um, the average gap, if we talk in terms of average gap, uh, for the 10 non-biblical sources that I've listed here is 98 years. So the average gap between events happening and these 10 uh, non-biblical authors writing about the event is 98 years. Um, even if you exclude Plutarch's lives, which you might think is a bit of an outrider, thinks it's, it's such a big gap, um, you still get an average gap of 75 years. But the average gap for the four Gospels is 45 years. Now, this is going on the, the tentative datings that I design, but still. Um, 
39 years for just the synoptics. And if you ignore Matthew and Luke's stories about Jesus' infancy, because of course they report events that happen over a number of years, um, and just focus on the synoptic testimony about Jesus' ministry, um, well then the average gap drops to 28 years. That's really good. Uh, And even if we relied on the liberal datings of the Gospels, uh, you could see that they would still compare quite favourably alongside other works of ancient biography and uh, history. Uh, They'd just shift up that chart somewhat, but uh, they'd still be looking good um, in terms of that gap for other bits of important ancient history. Now, here's where we get into the relationship between these, these Gospels. Um, you probably know that Matthew and Luke incorporate into their Gospels a lot of the material that's in Mark. A lot of the material that in Mark uh, gets repeated in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Uh, and this is why they're called the uh, Synoptic Gospels, because of that relationship uh, between them. And then John... Uh, doesn't have that kind of literary dependence on those other Gospels, which makes it very useful as an independent report of those events. But there are at least five independent Gospel sources that the Gospels draw upon, or so it is reckoned. Um, And they all come with a a different uh, name um, or letter, Uh, what's called Q, German quell for source, is material that's common to Matthew and Luke's gospel but doesn't come from Mark. And that's called Q. Then you have uh, material that's unique to Matthew, material that's unique to Luke, um, a pre-Mark and Passion source that some scholars argue is very, very early uh, for the Passion story. And uh, John's Gospel as well, some uh, argue, incorporate a source that describes the miracles, a miracles story source. So you have all these various different sources, some of and we don't know, but there's, you know, there's huge debates over, is that just memory? Is that individuals? Is that community memory? Were they written documents? Uh, some think so and some think not, and it's all uh, rather hoary to get into. But what that does mean... Is we're kind of pushing this information gap, as it were, smaller and smaller. Because the four Gospels, therefore, provide access to at least five independent sources of information. And that's very important to historians. Because the more independent sources you have telling you the same kind of thing, the more you tend to believe it. That take us back to within the the period of the, the eyewitness sources, the oral history uh, themselves. Uh, and you can also note, if you look at things like Paul's letters and so on, that, that so-called the Q texts are cited or, or echoed in Paul's letters in the mid-50s. Um, Dale Allison reckons that Paul knew material from Mark, the Q source, the source unique to Luke, and perhaps material unique to Matthew as well turns up in the letters of Paul which are dated quite early the the late 40s, the 50s uh, AD so 
at least elements of those sources must have existed within 20 years of the historical Jesus that the Gospels are then drawing on in their more rounded accounts, stuffing information from various sources into their uh, account of Jesus' life. And Richard Bockham, who I've already mentioned in his book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, he reckons that many of these named characters that turn up in the stories in the Gospels are named because they are the, the eyewitness source of that particular story. And that's why the names are there to say this is the, the source. Um, so these people were living in that first generation as the eyewitness sources that are being referred to uh, in the Gospels. Uh, so it's not, it's not all tradition. Uh, biblical scholars, say, 100, 150 years ago, would have talked a lot about sort of the oral traditions and the community memory and the, the stories that the community told. Um, but it seems to be that the view is coming more to, it's not that kind of oral tradition that we're talking about, but what's uh, more, plus, more technically called oral history. Um, where there are individuals who are known for being the source of that information, that particular story in the community. So with Paul Copan, just to round off here, he makes uh, a few nice brief points in favour of trusting the Gospel testimony. He says, given the importance of memorisation and oral tradition in first century Palestine... Given the practice of occasionally writing down and preserving the teachings of rabbis by their disciples, that was the done thing. Given the fact that the vast majority of Jesus' teaching was in poetic, easily memorizable form. The importance and revered status of religious traditions in the, in the Palestinian culture there. Uh, and the presence of uh, apostolic authority in Jerusalem to ensure the accurate transmission of tradition. He reckons we've got good reason to believe that the material in the Gospels was carefully and correctly just uh, set down, just like authors like Luke explicitly claims that he's carefully investigated the sources, the eyewitnesses to the events and compiled an orderly uh, account there as we read. So, um, going further, we'll take us into the next two chains in the testimony. Um, but there I think, although we can't be I mean, nothing in, in historical investigation is certain. We're working in history with probabilities. Um, but it seems to me that we have plausible arguments for thinking that the, the Gospels come from the, the sources that we're traditionally ascribing them to. Um, more plausible still that they derive from sources that were eyewitness sources within a generation of the life of Jesus that they're reporting. And that's the more important point. Whoever compiled the, the information, you know, whether it was Mark or someone else or whatever, but that these sources are very early, um, I would argue for relatively early dates for the Gospels, any sort of conservative in that sense. But even if you sort of took the later dates, the, you still have these sources that lie behind the Gospels and are incorporated into them and you get access through the Gospels to at least five independent sources of information about Jesus from within 20 years which in terms of ancient history 
is really good. And we saw that graph of the, the average gap between the spread of events that are happening, that are then being reported, and what that gap is. And um, the New Testament, I think on, on whatever dating you go, seems to fit in very comparably, at least, with that kind of gap in terms of ancient historiography. Um, yeah, so that's my little summarization. I shall turn over to questions uh, before, after prayer time, after the break, we'll, we'll look at the, um, the question of do we have now in our New Testaments what was originally written by whoever precisely it was compiled uh, the Gospels. As the Gospels were written so closely together, as you suggest, mm. uh, there seem to be a huge number of discrepancies mm. considering that fact. How do you account for that? Okay, question about discrepancies, and I'm just repeating it for the tape here, discrepancies in the Gospels. On the one hand, I think the discrepancies uh, get um, overinflated by critics, particularly new atheist critics and so on, who pick up on this kind of thing. And a lot of these so-called discrepancies have... Um, um, descriptions that you can give of them that fit them together plausibly in terms of paying close attention to the original texts. So you get things like, people will pick up on things like, you know, how many women went to the tomb and found it empty? Because it seems on a casual reading of the Gospels that you get very different numbers of women mentioned in different Gospels. Um, well, apart from the usual thing of, you know, get five witnesses to one car accident and you get rather different statements and the, the mere fact that they, you don't get the, exactly the same story from all the witnesses shows that they haven't collaborated, which would cast doubt on the story. It actually shows they're independent if there's some variation. But if you pay close attention to the biblical texts, you think, think things like um, one gospel will say, you know, Mary Magdalene and other women with her. And it doesn't say how many or who they were, but it does say there were other women apart from Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother, you know. Um, and so the fact that another gospel mentions by name two or three women isn't actually in conflict with the one that only mentions by name, say, one or two women, but, but then later on you find one of that, that woman who is the, the named speaker in the dialogue saying things like, and we found that, and who's this we? that suddenly cropped up. Um, so there were clearly a number of women uh, with a range of names, one of whom is you know, speaking centrally in this gospel and, and so on. And you can actually, by paying close attention, fit them together. Um, but also, I think this thing about oral tradition oral and oral history is really important. Uh, you, you've got to think back into a culture where memory is a lot more central storytelling is a lot more central, memorizing the events and teachings of a rabbi and so on, passing those along in an authoritative tradition from his disciples. Um, but in uh, that kind of oral history telling culture, the studies show that there's a certain degree of flexibility in the storytelling, along with a, a core of stuff that has to stay accurate 
it's a little bit analogous to telling a joke in English. You know, if you tell a, an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman walk into a bar, joke, well, it always has to be an Englishman, an Irishman, a Scotsman. They always have to walk into a bar. There has to be the punchline. You have to get the punchline right. But a good comic will tell the story in a way appropriate to their audience, in an engaging manner. Um, they might give you one crowd, one night, you know, you go to the show, they might tell it one way. Another night you might go to the show, they might tell it a slightly different way. But they will always have the same core ingredients that make that joke that joke that they're telling. Now, somewhat analogously, when you have the, the oral history being told, on any particular night at the, the home group gathering, <laughs> um, the person who is you know, the source for Luke's story of this, that, and the other will tell that their story. Um, and the community will know the story. And um, they have to get certain things right, certain things the community would say, hang on a minute, no, that's not what you said last time. You know, this, these are the key, really important things to the story. But there is a degree of, of flexibility that we are not used to in a culture that has recorded, written, you know, this is the story and that's it. Um, perhaps it's, you could also think of it analogous to a musical performance. You, you have the score... Um, but you get different interpretations, and you know whose interpretation of Shostakovich's second piano concerto is the best. You know, so and so does it a bit faster than so and so does, and you know which one do you? So it's the same bit of music, but there's a different sort of artistic expression of it every time it's played. It's played slightly differently by different conductors, and so on. And it, maybe that's another sort of analogy for this. So what you have in the Gospels is a kind of frozen snapshot of an oral history tradition. And when you view them like that, you see that what you get, in you get differences, but you get central teachings and, and important things the same. And they wouldn't have viewed them as in any way incompatible in the culture, I don't think. So would you argue then that the scriptures aren't the inerrant word of God? Uh, I wouldn't argue that, but I would argue for a very careful and nuanced definition of what it means to say that scripture is the inerrant word of God. Uh, and indeed, on my podcast channel, you can find a talk that I did on this very topic uh, recently on what does it mean to say that the Bible is inspired, um, um, in, inerrant, infallible, what do all these terms mean, given the fact that there are false statements in the Bible. That's the starting point I, I, I take from. Uh, I, I kind of road test various definitions uh, against some of the biblical facts. So, uh, I mean, take the, the story of, of Peter's denial of Christ, okay? And you can read the different reports of that story. And it's clearly the same basic story. And he denies Christ three times and he regrets it. And uh, it, But if you pay attention to the the, the the details of the, the story, the precise wording that we have differs from gospel to gospel. You know, Peter says things like, you know, no, you're wrong, I didn't know him on denial number two or whatever. But in another gospel, he, was, he would say, I didn't know the man. Okay. Now, did Peter say, 
no, you're wrong, I didn't know him, I didn't know the man. And a, third, and, and a third sentence as well, so that we can say, well, you know, John reported one of those sentences. and <laughs> It starts getting very implausible. Um, I thought more, more, more of the bigger discrepancy there is the fact that Luke says that uh, having denied him three times the cock crow, which is what Jesus predicted, but hmm. Mark says he cock crowed twice. Oh, sorry, the Mark, Mark says the cock crowed once after the first denial, and then the second time after the third denial, that's a far bigger distance. Isn't it? <laughs> well, again, by the time the cock has crowed three times, you has crowed, has finished crowing, yeah. you will have denied me. It's like you will have denied me <laughs> three times after a cock has crowed. But how many times? Yeah. Um, that's the kind of variation. That's the kind of variation that I think an, an, an oral retelling of the story just kind of wouldn't really even register. Whereas if one one story says, you know, Peter didn't deny him, and one said he did, that would have registered within the tradition. And people said, no, hang on a minute. Last time you told it, you said you denied him. You know. <laughs> so would you agree with William Lane Craig that the secondary elements yeah. of the resurrection story are legendary? Ooh, gosh, this opens up a whole particular can of worms. Um, are you thinking in particular of the whole um, the, the saints coming out of the tombs um, things? Um, yeah, I, th- I think that is a, a legendary, uh, a legend built, built upon some historical bedrock. I don't, think it's in, I don't think it's made up entirely. There's some interesting um, historical data for the darkness at, at the time that's mentioned so on. It was an earthquake zone. Um, the teams could have come, you know, Matthew's it's not implausible. <laughs> Matthew's the only one that mentions it, but also when you look at, oh, I'm going to fall over backwards. Also, when you look at um, various other uh, ancient uh, literary sources talking about the, the death of kings and emperors and things, um, those kind of elements get mentioned. Uh, and, yeah, but it, it's. You can see that, I think, against, against the literary culture rule background when you know it. It is him saying, this is the death of a really important king. You know. um, yeah. Because when, um, cause in the Gospel of Peter, Christ comes out of the tomb, doesn't he? He's followed by the cross. Oh, the, the conversation. Yes. Clearly apocryphal. Yeah, oh, yeah. And you would presume that you know, there's something of a similar nature in the uh, resurrection of the saints. Yes, but... I, I think it was important when you're looking when you're looking at the Gnostic Gospels and so on. There, so there, there. Even Thomas, I would say, dates from the middle second century. That's probably the earliest one. The others later. They are they are not within the generation. There's not a sense in which they go back to eyewitnesses. They clearly have a very different uh, kind of worldview, theological perspective. But yes, in the sense that ancient writers did sometimes, you know, describe events to make theological rather than historical points, yes, but it doesn't get us into a slippery slope of saying, well, how do we know, if you start saying that about one bit of the gospel, how do you know that, you know, all of it's not just made up kind of thing. I don't think, I don't think that slippery slope argument works. Um, I think you have to take everything on a case by, by case. I think the case for the, the Matthew opening tombs, etc., um, is plausible. Although, as I say, there's some information that plausibly ties it to some events that may have suggested that kind of story to um, the writer's mind in that culture. Can I just ask one more question? Sorry. Uh, 
is there any is there anyone else who, who would like to put, put a question in and if not we'll, we'll come back and if we don't time you can still t speak to me in break time but, uh, why we can't just take that as face value the, the tombs did open <coughs> Previous generations of saints kind of came out of the tomb. Well, yeah. Of any other, any other legendary mm. kind of, you know, examples of it in other literature. Sure, uh, and all of these arguments are going to be in, in terms of plausibility rather than and it, it's possible certainly, but the, the the arguments for not taking it literally would be that it's strange that it's the only gospel that mentions the event and isn't it odd that other you know, pagan sources tell that same kind of story about the death of important people um, what are the charts you know, do you <laughs> in other gospels there are, there are single events like the, the appearance of Jesus to the disciples on the road to, to Emmaus you know that's just a single, singly recorded mm. event in Luke, and uh, so you know, I, I don't yes. think there are other similar. Yeah, the, f the fact that it's singly recorded doesn't mean it didn't ha didn't happen. You know, um, I think it was such an amazing miracle, though, wasn't it? That you know, all these saints appeared to many people in Jerusalem. Yeah. But uh, you would have thought perhaps Peter might have mentioned it at Pentecost because he's trying to persuade people that Christ has risen. Yeah. And there's all these people walking around yeah. Jerusalem. It's, that's right. It's a more public event than, so, say, your appearance on the road to, to Emmaus. That's what a kind of uh, argument for the fact that it happened? But it's not, not that Peter didn't mention it on the day of Pentecost, because, uh, you know, when, how long were they around for? They may well have gone by then. Possibly. Perhaps they might have, hmm. you know, gone up with the, in the ascension of Jesus and all that, maybe. It's one... one but okay, yeah, but but then all it needs is someone to go around, you know, if there were many eyewitnesses still alive to the event, all, all that people who wanted to disprove it would have to do. Just go around and, and find out a load of eyewitnesses who said, Oh no, that was just a legend. We, we just made that up to embellish the story. But if but but the very fact that it was written you know, when a lot of these eyewitnesses would have still been alive and could have been checked out. In the same way that, you know, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he said 500 people at one time saw the, the resurrected Jesus. You know, basically what he was saying was, go and check it out. There's 500 guys, most of them are still alive. Go and check out the story. Yeah. That could have easily been checked out by other eyewitnesses, whether the saints arose from the... It, it could have been a book. Let's hold the debate there. This is why we want to do this tonight. We want to talk about things, wrestle with things together. That's why we called this stream Wrestling with the Faith, because we want to talk about stuff. Um, the guys next door are broken, so let's um, do uh, tea and coffee. We'll be back in here at 25 2, and we'll just pray together for a short while, uh, and then we'll uh, hear this uh, second session of Peter's. But uh, let's make our way through to tea.